The, um, the year is about uh, 735 BC, maybe 740, somewhere in there. And um, we are part of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel has divided into two kingdoms. They've had, by now, a long history of internal strife, civil war, um, lots of internal conflict. And so the nation has divided into two. We call them the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had ten of the original tribes, and the southern kingdom had two of the original tribes in what we now think of as the lands of Palestine. So the southern kingdom was around Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom was up into the northern parts of Palestine. And uh, we have a long history now of fighting with each other, fighting with the Lord, fighting with our neighbors. Uh, it's a dark time. It's actually a dark time in world history at this point because the uh, predominant um, foreign policy, if you will, is very simple. Um, you have what I want. And I'm stronger than you, so I'm going to take it. That's really the way it worked. And so back then, in a world where they had lots and lots of gods, very polytheistic, every nation had their series of gods, the way that they could determine that their god was the most powerful one was if they won a military conflict. And so the fact that Israel had been losing conflict after conflict for a number of decades told them that uh, they weren't sure their God could be trusted. So throughout their history, they pursued other gods, and they did that as well with, uh, as they began to lose battles. Because surely, if, if our God was the most powerful God, they didn't doubt his existence. But if he was the most powerful God, surely we would be winning wars, and we're not. So apparently, he's not the most powerful God. So Assyria, from the east, is... Uh, they didn't have internet, they didn't have newspapers and news channels and all that, but the uh, power of discussion is, is still alive. And they were very aware that Assyria was the big bully on the block, if you will, and they were moving and expanding their kingdom. Remember the basic, the basic mantra, you have what I want, and I'm going to expand my territory by taking what you have. You knew what was in store for you. You knew that if they actually did, it would involve the death of many of you, the starvation of many of you, the uh, rape and abuse of many of your women. You knew that. That's the way things weren't in the, happened in the ancient world, especially in uh, um, 700 years before um, Christ, before the Roman Empire. It's a dark time. It's a horrible time. It's a terrible time. And so we watch, now we're back, we're a, we're a village, and we watch as um, our friends and neighbors, perhaps family members, are shaking their fist at God. And they're saying, you know, God, if you're real, then deliver us, then we'll believe in you. And God said, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, I have sent you prophet after prophet to help restore your faith. Believe in me, and you'll see what happens. You will be surprised. And they refused. They simply refused. And so the nation at large was very opposed to worshiping God alone. They were angry. They didn't believe. They were bitter. That's kind of the context. So now we hear about uh, Tiglath-Pileser III. He's the emperor, the ruler of um, 
Assyria, he's a very ruthless man. He's very brutal, very brutal, and uh, very arrogant, very conceited. And for him, it was all about power and expanding control and his territory. And he's now on the horizon. We uh, perhaps have heard his, the, the noise of his war machines. We can hear him on the mountains coming. And um, <clears throat> you're kind of stuck. We're all stuck, aren't we? What do we do? Because if our army can't defeat him, then uh, it's a pretty hopeless situation. And we already have a history. We know our rulers, just like we do in our country today. We have a sense of who is committed to the good of our country and our people and who isn't. Um, they knew that as well. Many of our own kings had already begun paying tribute to him. Uh, security money, if you will. We'll pay you if you leave us alone. That's never a good idea because that leads to extortion. But that's where they were. And our own rulers have proven themselves to be very unreliable, unfaithful, in fact, evil. If you read the first uh, six or seven chapters of Isaiah... And Isaiah was one of the prophets sent to the northern kingdom specifically at this time. Here's what we learn, that our rulers, they take advantage of the poor. I remember in the ancient world, you had basically two classes. You had the wealthy and the elite, very small group that controlled and owned everything. And you had the poor, that's us. And most of us barely were able to survive. Took everything we had, all the work to survive. And so our own rulers were taking advantage of us. How are they paying these tributes? They're taking taxes from us to pay off this king of Assyria. They're greedy. They're taking some of the money themselves, patting their own pockets, living in, in uh, wealthy palaces and places like this. It's all chronicled in the first part of Isaiah. They're self-indulgent. They live only for their own pleasure. They're having parties where they're drinking and carousing, and uh, we don't have that ability to do that. We don't even have the funds, the resources to do it, much less the capacity to do it. They're deceitful. They're not trustworthy. Uh, we can't believe what they tell us. They love evil. They laugh when evil happens, when people are mistreated. They're arrogant. And worst of all, they can be bribed. And none of us have enough money to bribe them. So who receives the special favors? Those who have resources. Seems hopeless, doesn't it? That's the world, the ancient world around late 8th century B.C. for Israel. In 733, um, we've already seen Tiglath-Pileser on the horizon. It's now 733, and he comes rolling in with his war machines and his chariots. And what that brings to us is it brings uh, hunger, food shortages, food shortages, anger, abuse of human rights as we define them today. Nothing good comes out of this. What do we do? The people are all around us are pretty angry. <clears throat> they're blaming the kings and they're blaming God. That's who they're blaming. It's God's fault. Because if he was a better God, he would have stopped it, wouldn't he? Seems reasonable. It's a picture of total darkness and destruction. In the northern part of Israel, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, you're going to hear those words in just a minute, those two tribes, they were the northernmost. They took the brunt of the Assyrian invasion. They were hit the hardest, and they endured crushing defeats. 
standard military strategy, first millennium BC, was I'm going to come in and take what you have. I'm going to kill the men so that your military is now impotent. We're going to kill the old people because they serve no longer any purpose. We're going to abuse the women because that's part of their loot. But what we're after is your gold and silver, your cattle, the things that you have. So they experienced crushing defeat very under the hands of Tiglath-Pleser, a very evil man. And we blame God. When the reality is, when we look at Isaiah, we get a picture of this from God's perspective. And the way God presents it is this way. I created you, and I love you, and I want to bless you. And yet you see fit to rebel against me and reject me, and you hurt one another, and you take advantage of each other. Why would I bless that? So he does the most honoring thing that no other God in the ancient world did, by the way. This is unique to our history. He did the most honoring thing that a God could do. He gave us the choice. You choose. And we walked away from him. And we began to inflict all of these things on our fellow country people, taking advantage to one another, taking bribes. That's how we're going to survive. Injustices, unrighteousness, hurting one another. And God says, I gave you a choice. Why would you, why would you want me to bless you? Come back. So he began to send prophet after prophet after prophet to them to say, I want to bless you and I love you. Stop these evil practices and turn around and do what's right. And they didn't do it. In this context, we receive one of the, what will eventually become one of the most famous prophecies that makes it into the Christmas story. Uh, first, I'm going to read the very end of chapter 8, verse 19, so you can see just a short glimpse. If you read the whole seven chapters, you get the whole story. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God first? Shouldn't that be where you would go? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? If there is a God, and if he is real, it's a question you each have to answer, then he's powerful enough to take care of things. If he's not, why not? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward. They will curse their king and they will curse their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be uh, thrust into utter darkness. That's what we're experiencing. It's a really dark time. It appears hopeless. It's without hope. But as is the case all throughout history, there are those that do believe and stand up and do what's right. In every nation, there are those that do it. And you happen to be one of them. And out of this darkness comes one of the most famous prophecies used during the Christmas season. Despite the fact that Israel had rejected God, he planned to bless them and give them light again. The very next verse says, but nevertheless, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. 
You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Several very important things in these short, short verses here. One is there's a, there's a return to joy that's coming. So if you are one of those who has stood up and done what's right, no matter the cost, there's a hope that appears out of this very dark world. There's a hope. But he, but he says this little phrase, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This phrase appears all throughout the Bible. And it's referring to those who were Jew, non-Jewish, non-Israelites. It's referring to Gentiles. You see, in our own heritage, God selected Israel. That's why we, calls them, we call them the chosen people. Not because they were special. Not because they were unique or some way better than the people around them. He just picked them to say, go tell the other people in this dark world about my loving kindness. Go tell with them what a great God I am, that I created them, I love them, I want to bless them as well. So Israel had a role to play, and that was to go tell all the nations about peace, about the things that we believe, about a true faith, about a hope that's real, about a peace that will endure. And they chose not to do that. <clears throat> Rather, they adopted the practices of the surrounding nations, and there was very few people left to tell the world. So he gives us this prophecy, the people walking in darkness, those are all the surrounding nations, they have seen a great light. They've seen it. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned, and joy is coming. That's our story as Christians. The question is, how did he do it? Well, first of all, did he do it? And then how did he do it? That's where we move to verse 6. This is the famous prophecy that you hear repeated in churches all around the world. <clears throat> For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Now remember, we're looking at world events from God's perspective in these prophecies, not from a historical perspective. So for God, he's looking down on this dark world, and he said, all right, they did not do what I asked them to do to go out and tell them how much I love them, uh, so I'm going to do this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, notice the words peace all throughout here, he's a prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom and establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. This is a just and good king that's coming. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He actually says this prophecy twice because in uh, Isaiah 7, two chapters earlier, he says again, a child will be born. Same language is here. That's where we get the idea throughout uh, all of Christian history that a virgin birth comes from Isaiah 7. This is Isaiah 9. His titles reveal his greatness and his kingship. They're going to tell us what he's going to be like. This child will become the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. All four of those terms tell us something about this king that's coming. The wonderful counselor, as the king, we want to be able to trust our king, don't we? Okay, we don't have kings in our country today, but back then the king had absolute authority. We want to be able to trust the king. 
And what do we know about this one? He's a wonderful counselor. That means that we can trust him. We can trust what he says. But he's also a mighty God. Here he's pictured as a warrior, one who will protect us, one who will defend us, one who will ensure peace. One of the things that Ruth and I have in common, and several of you out there actually, is that we practice martial arts. We've dedicated our life to peace in many areas, and that's one of the ways we do it. And um, you guys all know that. You give me a hard time about it, actually. <laughs> He's also called the Everlasting Father. He's pictured as a protector of his people. I know that not all of you come from homes where your father is to be looked up to with respect. I understand that. I get it. So I'm going to ask you just for a brief moment to set aside your experience and think through a Christian version, definition of what a good father is. And especially in the ancient Near East, where the, uh, it's largely patriarchal, the fathers, the good fathers and the sons, they protected the family. They would defend the honor of the women. They would make sure that they had a good life. They would do all those wonderful things. And so when, when this king, whoever it is, is coming, is pictured as an everlasting father, he is a faithful protector and provider. We could depend on him. He's trustworthy. And then the final one is Prince of Peace. He's going to establish a safe environment for his people. This is the verse that Matthew uses in chapter 4 of Jesus. In fact, these, these, all these terms are used. Many of these verbs are now repeated in the New Testament, the Greek, uh, the Greek scriptures of Jesus, to help us to see that this king has come. Now, if we were to write history, we would have done the whole thing in one swipe, I guess. Boom! Here he comes, and he restores peace to the entire world. God did it a different way. He is still interested in our dignity. He's still interested in our humanity and us being able to tell others about what a great God that we serve. That's what he's interested in. And so in Ephesians 3, Paul tells us that uh, to God be the glory in the church. God could do it himself, but he created us for a reason. He gave us something to do. We're created for that. We're created to love people. We're created to be peacemakers. We're not created for tension. We're not created for any of that. We're not created for hostility and strife. Not at all. This is a core theme of our belief as Christians. And so God starts, first of all, with us as individuals before he moves further out into the world. His kingship is made clear. It will involve peace and it will involve justice, righteousness, everything that happens. The question then is how did Christ do that? Well, in Ephesians, now as we move through the book, the Bible is a wonderful thing because it starts ideas back here and it begins to develop them slowly over time. Okay, Which again reflects the graciousness of the Lord because it shows patience with us and allows us to live our lives and allows us to come to know him very slowly. He's, not, he's never going to violate our free will. He's never going to force himself on us. That would be the opposite of love. He does the most wonderful thing a God can do. He gives us a choice after choice after choice and lets us figure that out. So in Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that Christ is our peace, first of all. And then we're told that he, he eliminated uh, this hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Those were the two predominant ways you could, you could see the world in the ancient world. He eliminated the hostility. 
therefore leading us to peace. But then he goes on and tells us we have to live it out. Just because we have peace doesn't mean it's going to stay maintained. Interesting idea. So that's what he tells us. So the very sending of Christ himself is characterized by peace. You heard it read in Luke this morning when we did the uh, Advent devotion. Listen to it again. The story, the shepherds are on the hillside and the angels appear and they're terrified. I bet they are. <laughs> and suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared to the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. What's the next word? Peace. You know it, don't you? It's on all of our Christmas cards. The glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers. Right? This should be a defining characteristic of us. It should be. It should be who we are. So glorifying God involves the spreading of peace. This is why Christ came and sacrificed himself for us. To show us what that looks like. For those who become Christians who follow Christ, peace is now one of our central beliefs. Justice and righteousness should characterize our very lives. It should be the, the essence of the way we live life. As with Jesus, we should set the example for the rest of the world to see. That's what Christ did. Pause just for a second. <clears throat> Last week I was with Merle and Dorothy twice. How many of you have been influenced by Merle and Dorothy? Let me see your hands. Most of you. Uh, Merle's 83. On December 19th, they celebrate their 63rd. They will celebrate their 63rd anniversary. A lot of influence in this county. Significant and deep and profound influence in our history of our church. And uh, the doctors told him, the pulmonology doctors, that uh, he had at the most one year to live. Most likely a lot less. So it's time to decide. Do you want to die in the hospital or do you want to die at home? He's been told that. So Dorothy explained all that to us while we were there. Their family was there, and Nancy and I went down. And, um, and I just looked at Merle, and I said, Merle, what do, you, what do you think when you hear that? I've not been told that. What do you think? And he had tears, and he has, uh, he has pneumonia and COPD. He can barely breathe and talk. And he goes, I am excited. Isn't that great? I already knew that he knew how to die with dignity. He's demonstrated that through lots of adversity. What I didn't know is, did he know how to die with hope? There's a difference. I heard it in his voice. So he and I have an agreement. I'm going to come down every couple weeks and spend time with him. I said, I'm not on that journey. I want to know what it's like. So if I come down every couple weeks and sit with you, will you tell me what this journey is like for you? And he said, yes. So we've already been down twice. But as I sat there, I realized something very significant and profound to me. A chapter is closing. <laughs> I've only been here 18 months, and I already can feel the weight of this chapter closing. Uh, he's no longer around to influence us. He's already down in Denver and barely surviving. But it, it helped. By the way, he knows I'm doing this. I look back on the life of faith and his beliefs, which has anchored their life. Such solid, core beliefs. It's very clear and articulate they are. Faithful people. And it got me to thinking that part of living life in a fallen or broken world is chapters close. 
Let me illustrate it. If I hate to, I, well, I don't hate too much because I'm going to do it. I was going to say, I hate to identify your age, but if you're over 60, please stand up. Good. If you're over 60, please stand up. I don't care what your faith tradition is. All right. This is a chapter that has got us where we are. Can we tell them thank you? Let's just say thanks. And for some of you, the chapter will close sooner than later, some of you later than sooner. I don't know the, how that's going to work. But I realize that we have uh, a chapter here that's ahead of me. I picked that age so I wouldn't have to identify myself with it. <laughs> Although I'm not far away. <laughs> we, have a, we have a group of people who have taught us, who have handed down a faith tradition who have made sure they have sacrificed for this church, haven't they? They have, right? I'm thankful for those of you, and most, most of you came out of that generation that paid for this 12, 13 years ago, whatever it was. Thank you for that. What a great legacy that I walked into. But you're the ones that taught us faith. You're the ones that model it. You're the ones that lived it out. You're the ones that have seen adversity. You're the ones that have strived for peace when it's not always possible. So here's a question I have for my generation and the ones behind me. Who's going to stand up? Who's going to do it next? Are you willing to sit with these people and listen to their stories? Are you willing to sit with them and listen to how they persevered and lived lives that had integrity and faith and did what was right? If not, then we're going to lose something very, very valuable, a trust. So what is peace? Well, first of all, it starts with the individual person. It's a flourishing. It's a flourishing of a person. If you look at a person, you could tell if they are at peace. They flourish. That's the way God created all of us. Um, to live at peace. It's a flourishing. You can see it. It's a giving of life. A person that is at peace generates life in others. A person that lives in tension consumes, sucks the life right out of you, don't they? So it starts with the inner person. It's a resting of the soul. It's aware of God's presence, no matter what's going on. It's a wellness. It's a health that just moves out, that radiates from us. Peace is something that all of us were created for. But let me add one thing to it. Because it necessarily involves the way we live in our community. Here in Summit County. If we live with peace internally, and we live in the world with conflict, and we are part of that conflict, then we've never experienced genuine peace. You can't have one without the other. It's impossible. The Bible argues that from beginning to end. Because what you truly believe is going to be modeled in your life. If we as a church do not live out peace, then we have nothing to say to a culture that understands tension and brokenness and war and hostility and abuse. If we don't do it, who's going to do it? This is a critical piece of what we do. So what does it look like in our community? It eliminates revenge. It eliminates revenge. Great. Let's make sure we don't seek revenge. Vengeance. It seeks the good of other people. That's what it does. It lifts up those who are suffering. 
It courageously faces adversity. There are many scholars that believe that Jesus' phrase, his teaching, if, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. You're familiar with that? Okay. In the ancient world, most people are right-handed like today. So if somebody strikes you, they strike you on the left cheek. If they're striking you on the right cheek, that's a backhand. Okay? And if the masters over the slaves did that, that was humiliating. That was humiliating. And I think maybe what Christ is saying there, if somebody strikes you this way, now I'm reading into it, with a twinkle in your eye, stand up to adversity. Because what you do is you expose unrighteousness when you do that. He's not saying be a doormat. That's not what he's saying at all. And he modeled that. He stood up to the unfair accusations and court system and trials that put him on the cross. And he did it with dignity. Take it. Bring it. Again, he's not trying to get us to fight. He's trying to say stand with dignity. Somebody humiliates you by striking you this way, turn the other cheek and expose their own evil, their own unrighteousness. That's a movement toward peace because you care more about. You care more about living a life of integrity than you do about vengeance. This is a story of Christmas. God did not forget us. He remembered his promise. He sent us a king teach us how to live our lives here. This is our home. How to live out our faith in very real ways. That's the story of Christmas. He remembered his promise. We saw in Isaiah. So, the lighthouse? Okay. Who is our lighthouse as Christians? Jesus. All right. If we are to live out these practices in the world, Maybe we become a lighthouse for a community that doesn't know how to live a life of peace, doesn't know how to resolve tension. Maybe they don't know how. We become a lighthouse. That's why we chose that symbol. You get it? That's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for remembering your promise. Thanks for sending us a king that we could have confidence in, faith in, trust, and believe. And Jesus, thanks for going through all those horrible things that you went through to help us grasp what it really means to live a life of integrity, to live in the world around us in a way that helps people to come to the knowledge of the truth. Thanks for blessing us. In your name we pray, amen.